Hello and welcome to our listeners to podcast episode 15 of Voltec Tech Talks. My name is John Hewson and once again I'm joined by Shabaz Hashmi. How are you doing today, Shabaz? I'm doing good, John. How about you? Very well, thank you. This week, taking a sort of tangent from our last week's topic of that big tech congressional hearing, we will be speaking about an instance of social media platform self-censorship, as well as having a wider discussion about censorship in general. This is regarding the recent news that Instagram, having said the previous Tuesday, that they will automatically hide negative comments in posts. A step that they report is one being taken to reduce the degree of bullying on the social media platform. They've also tweaked their comment warning feature after a user writes a potentially offensive comment, but before the comment is posted, a pop-up message will now appear that reads, this may go against our guidelines. The pop-up message notifies users that if they post a negative comment, it will likely be hidden and that Instagram may investigate whether to, del- to delete the user's account. So Instagram has received a lot of attention due to the prevalence of bullying on their platform. And as of recently, they are moving to remove comments that wish or hope for death, serious bodily harm, or fatal disease upon, upon anybody. This does not automatically wow. mean suspension. And so the bottom line for this change is that Instagram perceives negative commentary as something that will spur those who are subjected to it to change their usage habits and most likely start using it less. This affects their revenue as their user retention rate is now lowered. And on a related note, Facebook said in August that it is investing billions of dollars to keep hate speech off its platform and has deleted more than 22 million negative or harmful posts. So, initial thoughts on this, Shabazz. <clears throat> That's a lot to unpack there. Um, I don't know. Do you use Instagram yourself, John? Are you an Instagrammer? Oh, I had a brief phase, but it didn't really resonate with me too strongly, sadly. No, no, me too. I mean, I think I, think I gave Instagram a crack back when I was um, 12 or 13. And back in those days, they used to have these really cool, um, I guess, Facebook had this really cool, um, I guess, emoticon generator where you can kind of make your own emoji almost before emojis were a thing um and i set that as my instagram photograph and i have not changed it since classy (laughs) so yeah my uh, so before i go too deep into this um i'm gonna just preface this with um i think instagram is a pretty cool platform it might not be what i'm into personally so whatever I say, please do take with a grain of salt. Um, but having said that, um, a lot of my close friends are avid Instagrammers, all the way from beach photographs to photographs of the food they make. You've got like this massive, massive um, group of Instagram Instagram bakers. You know, it's really cool. Or even Instagram musicians. I mean, Instagram seems like it has everything these days. Yeah, they definitely have quite a, an amazing array of content on there. The way I see Instagram, whilst it's not really my thing personally, I do, I guess, perceive it to be what social media platforms were originally intended to be. It's this simplistic, easy user interface that you can either post a story or just a series of photos in a collage or whatever. But 
I think that's kind of what those who designed social media platforms originally saw its use case as. Like the ultimate casual social media platform. And isn't that great? You're lying down, um, let's say you're on the couch on a Sunday evening, um, flicking through some Instagram posts. That's what it's all about. So when you think about it from that perspective, what was this platform designed to do, right? It was designed to let people express themselves. Um, It was designed to let people share moments. It was designed to be a medium of, I guess, information and just... uh, the trans- like transfer of information and like chill posts, basically. And if we go back to that vision, I mean, it makes a lot of sense why they're doing this. I'm pretty sure this platform was not designed um, with the idea of rampant comments and uh, jealousy-invoking posts that lead to very, very hurtful responses, you know? So... It makes a lot of sense why they're going about it this way. Um, and I actually have to say, it's, it's a very interesting way of doing things, you know? Like, um, I think that just, just thinking about this a bit, just saying this may go against our guidelines before someone posts something, it, mi- it might just be that second that they need to go, huh, should I be posting this? Should, like, it's should is this actually going to hurt someone because you know in the midst of rampant emotion maybe all you need is just someone to nudge you and be like hey is this right is this you is this what you want to post and just that i i think they also said that um like instagram has the right to delete a user's account based on this stuff these days social media is used um, to this extent where a post doesn't really mean too much. Uh, a post here or there, it doesn't really matter. A comment here, I mean, we've got millions of comments on these social media platforms, even on a single post, right? So just taking that time out and being like, hey, for each of those that seem odd, are you being toxic? And if you are, we'll remove your account. I mean, it really changes the value of a comment. You know what I mean? It really, It really makes you go, huh. Maybe the single comment is more than just a string of text in a database or a string of text under this picture that has other strings of text. I don't know. That's my stance. What do you think? Yeah, I initially don't have any problems, I guess, with just having a little prompt pop-up message that states this may go against our guidelines. It's an experiment, really. It's an ongoing experiment wherein this is a very successful social media platform and you have a lot of people who get a lot of personal satisfaction out of using it. But alongside that, there comes those who may become disheartened by the degree to which others, you know, see their like count and followers skyrocket whilst theirs remain stagnant. And so they get some kind of, I guess, imposter syndrome. And a while ago, Instagram actually removed likes, I think, or they experimented where they um, removed the ability for people in a number of countries to see likes on users' posts. And I believe Australia was one of them. Yeah, Australia was definitely one of them. This was a couple of months ago, though, I believe. I don't know if it's reverted since. But the outcome of that, I 
assumed haven't done the reading up on its results whether they've actually written a report on it or anything but i presume it would make people who have far fewer followers to feel more comfortable in sharing their content because it would generally just if you are constantly a if you're a person who likes to scour your particular favorite instagrammers on the regular and you may feel insignificant or something with respect to their likes and followers just these numbers it's kind of gamifying your social life and overall that's probably somewhat damaging but i think it is a good move to basically make that invisible yeah i think it has two effects really right i mean it's like the first one is hey i know a lot of people like Back when I was in high school, this is another little anecdote, I guess, but back when I was in high school, I remember that um, I used to have a few friends that would, you know, post on Facebook quite a bit, and they would legitimately tell me, hey, I'm posting something, can you go like it for me? And I'd be like, what? (laughs) They'd be like, yeah, if this doesn't get at least 10 likes in the first hour, I'm just going to delete it. And you go... It's too embarrassing to have it up there with six likes. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, I can definitely see where this is coming from. A lot of people pin their self-worth on the number of people that click that little blue, um, blue up, the blue thumbs up arrow, you know, on Facebook. So, one, I feel like it will really, um, it will really make people feel better about not getting that many likes. I know Facebook did something very similar. Um, and I think the effect is twofold. It's not just good for the users, right? It's also good for the platform. Because I can see so many, so many um, creative people that just think that their content is not good enough because they're not getting as many likes as their favorite creators. And maybe this is a longer process than they're expecting, you know? So, so many creators can just be left by the wayside because they just think that they're just not there yet. You know what I mean? And not having that judgment might actually lead to more fresh content. So I think that move was really cool. And I've been looking for, um, I've been looking for some updates on this. Um, it doesn't look like Instagram's really given us any updates but I'm pretty sure it's still in effect. So surely that's good. Um, But yeah, negative comments, I think, especially with the younger group, like the younger audience, do you know what I mean? Like high schoolers. I feel like it's very important there uh, because kids can really say the nastiest things to each other. Yeah, I'd posit they probably say the nastiest things. They don't understand the gravity of the words they say for the most part. That's what I'm saying. So, um, I'm not saying the nasty things, but I, I completely agree with you. <laughs> yeah, so from that perspective, I mean, hiding negative comments just seems like a no-brainer. And I'm really, really glad they're doing this. But, I mean, just to play devil's advocate a little. Um, again, nothing I say past this point is my view. <laughs> I always feel like I need to preface it with that. Um, <clears throat> who, like, who actually gets to say what's right to say? Now, of course, you've got the black and whites. You've got the just blatantly obvious negative comments, like slurs or just raw anger. 
from nowhere, you know? Like, yeah, sure. But then I feel like we're, we've kind of got a bit of a gray area, especially when it comes to, like, politics. I think we hit on this earlier. Um, or even gray areas otherwise. Like, I know a lot of terms some people think are totally fine to use, um, but other people are very, very offended by. Um, so the question is, who's going to, like, it's almost cultural to some extent. Like, um, I used to live in um, Indonesia, and some of the things that you're allowed to say in Indonesian society are fair game, but when you say them over here, it's like, wait, what did you just say? Like, I know within Indonesia, it's really normal to just talk about people's weight really casually within the family, being like, yeah, he's super duper fat, you know, or stuff like that. And then if you say something like that in Australia, you'll, you, you'll turn some heads, you know? Um, so, like, that kind of stuff. Who's the one to say that something's acceptable or not? And if we even think of it from like a, from a general perspective, should it be the social media platforms? But if, if it's different between communities, should it be the user groups? That, Yo, that's a yeah. very interesting, I guess, point to mention how, how in a world full of so many different societies and subcultures, can we possibly have a unified centralized means of dictating what is appropriate discourse for these platforms and it brings to mind something i recently learnt regarding the uk having recently set up plans to to set up an internet watchdog so the announcement of the office of communication better known as ofcom to head up the new form of regulation came on the 12th of February and we'll see the independent company regulating the content of social media platforms operating in the United Kingdom, such as Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. Maybe not so much anymore, but... <laughs> Rest in peace. Um, yeah. Ofcom is a regulatory authority approved by the UK government and it is known for regulating daily communication services already, such as phones, televisions, and mobile services but also oversees broadcast and radio licenses, as well as the Universal Postal Service. And its responsibilities are determined by Parliament, but it is independent and funded by fees paid by the companies it regulates. So I found that to be an interesting business model, wherein yeah. you know, if we want to apply that to, say, Australia, we would have you know, some Australian branch of Twitter or Facebook, respectively. They would be paying a duty fee to the regulatory body that the the Australian government could hypothetically set up. And I think I prefer this model to the idea of, well, just, just at first glance, I do prefer this model to the idea of these social media giants regulating themselves. Yeah, that doesn't and seem that, great. <laughs> no, because it allows them to, I guess, keep the regulation in line with what governments want. But again, that just makes it effectively government censorship of these platforms. And so we're inevitably going to get into this deep discussion, well, deeper discussion of censorship and the morality of it, the history surrounding it. Yeah, that's a very... But that being said, yes, I think we're both on the same page with regards to making social media platforms just a, a, 
a jollier place overall. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just what they're meant to be. You know, uh, uh, there's one social media platform um, that really intrigues me. Um, I have to say, it's where I spend quite a bit of my social media time. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it. You probably have. Um, Reddit. Like everyone's, the front page of the internet, right? I feel like... Yeah, of course. There are a lot of people that haven't really uh, dived too deep into it. But I'm I'm very intrigued by their um their upvote downvote system. Um, I feel like I feel like a lot of people think about this. Um, wait, let me just explain it to you. Um, first for those of you that haven't actually looked into this one too much. Um, and if you haven't, please look into it. It's it's honestly the best source of any content. Um, on the internet, but. Reddit, it has this upvoting system where you can, you have like an up arrow and a down arrow. And then when you see a post written by a user, I think it's subject to maybe the last six months. I'm not too sure on the time frame. You have the ability to give it an upvote or give it a downvote. And then the, I guess the total score, whether it's negative or positive, is displayed next to the post. And then I believe if enough negative, um, if this post gets enough negative, um, enough of a negative score, it automatically hides the post and it triggers almost moderation. And unlike Facebook, um, your name isn't attached to what you like and dislike. So there's no stigma on um, downvoting posts. So you can downvote as many posts as you want and no one will actually know. So you can kind of, you can use your inner voice without any fear of judgment. And it's almost like a self-regulating thing on what society finds acceptable and unacceptable. Now, maybe this isn't the right solution because obviously there are some massive issues with this idea with minority groups and the like. Um, there's actually an entire subreddit dedicated to controversial um, opinions where you've got some crazy upvotes and downvotes, you know? Um, but it's just an idea. Maybe, like, at the end of the day, like, we're looking at this from the perspective of, hey, which central coordinator should be cleaning up our social media? Who should go in there and deal with the dirty laundry after we've worn our clothes, you know? Uh, but maybe, maybe, that, maybe there's another way to do it. Now, I don't think we've um, researched this one too much, but I think it's a very, very good um, thing to bring up that this is not the only way of doing things. So while we may look like we're locking ourselves in this paradigm of a central coordinating agency, um, that's, yeah, you don't need a central coordinating agency in some cases, and maybe there are other ways to do it. I mean, what do you think about this, John? Do you see, do you see, a a, a distributed, um, a distributed societal censorship method as being acceptable? Like, and you don't even have to say that you need the majority to downvote something. You can just say, hey, if there are 10 people that are saying this is wrong, there's probably something here that's affecting people. Thoughts, go for it. Yeah. Um, well, let me just start off by saying that, yeah, I do very much enjoy Reddit myself. I like the whole yeah. system by which it operates, wherein you can't pay to have more visibility for your posts or whatever. It is simply sorted by the, the, either the, um, how recent the post is, or I guess you can sort by controversial as well. So the most radically upvoted or downvoted stuff will become more visible to you. But yeah, I do respect the decentralized nature of how it's basically moderated. So you were saying that 
the most widely downvoted posts are prone to being moderated and then that's what would trigger them getting checked out and then potentially taken down. One funny historical example of this, I don't know if you heard about it, but um, the video game publishing company, EA, has the most downvoted Reddit post in Reddit's history. Really? <laughs> um, Gosh. I haven't, I haven't heard of this yeah. one. I know EA is generally disliked by almost everyone. Um, but wow, yeah, I'm having a look at this. What was this? It was... Um... Yeah, the backstory is nothing crazy, but basically everyone was very displeased with, I believe it was Star Wars Battlefront 2, and they were just explaining how they managed to put a bunch of like loot boxes and lock a lot of content behind paywalls, and they just got rampantly downvoted and you know, cemented their, pl- their place in history on the internet as an infamously, let's say, consumer-unfriendly company. But yeah, even- all of that aside, that's an example of decentralized voting. But again, it's just a company defending its business practices, so it's not really... Yeah, that, that's the fascinating part. You're like, hey, if this system's so great, surely the, the margin for getting false positives with this system is just atrociously high. Because with that idea that you don't actually get associated with the stuff that you dislike, that's where it gets interesting because you're like, okay, if I don't get associated with the stuff I dislike, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to dislike stuff that I kind of like. I woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning and this guy's smile is looking at me a bit, a bit, bit shifty. You know, this guy looks a bit shifty. I, I, I don't really like the way he's looking into the camera. Screw that, man. I'm just going to dislike. And I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not one to dislike like that, but. You know, I, I can see quite a few people just going out there and false, like, uh, it's a whole thing in gaming, actually. Um, people would be false reporting people just because they beat them in a video game. Like, that, like that's an entire culture, you know? Um, yeah, you've got so many, so many interesting characters out there who do interesting things. Um, of course, none of which I condone. Um, yeah, and then you've got, like, if you go deeper into video game culture, you're like, maybe, maybe we should not allow people to have these, to make these decisions. Like, have you heard of swatting? That's an entire... I was about to mention that. Yeah. 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 Do you want to talk us through this? Yeah, sure. So for those of you who have not heard of swatting, there, basically it happens to people who play games on a stream. Usually over the past, it's been over something like Twitch, platform Twitch. You basically just... Cast yourself playing a game and providing commentary, but inevitably there are trolls. And once they learn of your address, they will basically make a phony call to the police department or SWAT department. So, you know, police in like military gear and they bust into their house and arrest them violently on camera for the whole Twitch stream to see. Oof. And And it's brutal. Yeah, it's a... Oof, you can say that again. It's very, very brutal indeed. And, and the thing is, like, you just think, oh, it's, it's a bit of harmless fun, but it's actually, like, the amount of money these SWAT teams actually cost to be flown out were transported out, and actually there they could be saving a life right now, but instead you've got this idiotic... I don't even care if they're an adult. I'm going to call them a child at this point. An idiotic child who's calling in and saying, hey... This, this person's doing something really, really wrong, you know? And, I mean, I know people go to jail for this now. 
Um, there was this recent SWAT um, of this content creator that I follow from time to time. Um, I don't know if you've heard of them. They're called H3H3 Productions. Heard of them, yeah. I'm not like, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I watch a video here and there. Um, and you've got these guys who just do their podcast. It's called the H3 Podcast. And out of nowhere, they had this random guy swatting them. And they were really scared for their dog because um, apparently the rule is if a dog comes in front of you while you're swatting, you just take it down. Oh, oh it's, it's actually like, it's actually brutal. Um, and they were worried about their dog and then they were just, it's a very traumatic experience as well. People who get squatted, like, imagine if you had full armed, like, uh, I don't know what you call them, like, full armed um, soldiers, basically, break down your door point a gun at your head and if you move the wrong way i mean it's america right who knows yeah no one knows how that's going to go exactly down. so anyway getting getting back to the topic at hand should <laughs> that little segue yeah there. right but, but it was a good segue i enjoyed it um the the uk's approach for censorship um how did we make it swatting i'm not too sure but um we were basically talking about how the uk's approach which has been present for i think a year Oh no, Ofcom, the regulatory body, basically the centralized authority that determines what is acceptable on these public communication services. And then we segued onto Reddit as the decentralized yes, alternative. That's it. An example of a decentralized regulation. And why you shouldn't for use. online discourse. Yes. Yeah. And so I guess the question that naturally follows is who watches the watchman? So, Ofcom, for example, in the UK, who's calling the shots for them? Well, the government, right? <laughs> it's an office of communication. Yep. And what's wrong with that? Oh, Oof. only a few things. <laughs> yeah, what is wrong? So, with that? we should maybe we can go through a brief history of government censorship in the last century or two. Oh, man. I mean, like. You just have so much here, right? Like you, you can. You know, let's start from the from as early as we can. So I mean, there were some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's if we like, we're in Australia right now. So why don't we just start off with an Australian example, right? Yeah, sure. So yeah, just looking through some of the stuff. Um, there was this Macquarie University, um, publication on called the Empire of Illusions. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, I'll just like uh, summarize the abstract a little. Um, basically, there was a rapid spread of cinema throughout British colonies in the 1920s. Um, <clears throat> and it was regarded as a major threat to the stability of the empire. Now, okay, um, first off, I know you're thinking, well, you're literally talking about empires. We're living in a day and age where we're comparing this to just throwing a post onto a social media platform using my smartphone from, I don't know, the bathroom. <laughs> this is a bit extreme, um, yeah. but just just to just to bring this all into context, like there are people that are still alive from the days when this was enacted. So while we think it's ancient history, because time in our in our lives is just like second to second, it's like a whole new age for us, or year to year, especially in the world of technology, it's like a millennium. <clears throat> but this stuff isn't that long ago. Absolutely. So we need to have a balanced discussion about this. And I guess governmental track records 
of censorship and the reasonings behind it, right? Yeah, and even as even as early as like last the last century, you know. I mean, this isn't old stuff. This is not ancient history we're bringing up. This is pretty pretty recent, anyway. And it's kind of sad when you realize how recent this was. It really it really makes you wonder, like, yeah, it makes you wonder, you know. It makes you wonder what the society is based on. But that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> so 1920s uh, films were regarded as a major threat to the stability of the empire. This is the British Empire, I believe, the Commonwealth. So there was a Commonwealth censorship board. I don't know if this is um if this is linking back to what we just spoke about as potential solutions. Um so um in 20 in 1929, an experimental prohibition commenced in the Northern Territory in Australia. Um which um basically um let me have a look. So this this investigates how the prescribing process was informed by competing... Okay, sorry. Let's start over. But this article basically goes through um, how the federal intervention into Aboriginal spectatorship was an attempt to further uh, regulate and control lives of Abor- Aboriginal Australians, and it was used to aid racial and social engineering so let me just break that down again this article goes through how you have this regulatory board less than a hundred years ago that was controlling the main form of media at the time which was film well one of the main forms of media it was still pretty it was still in its infancy i think it's a pretty good um it's a pretty good comparison to social media right now because I don't think it's really past its infancy yet. <clears throat> and basically, a government body was used there doing stuff that was seen to be completely okay in those days. And it really had a damaging effect on society. It was used to aid racial and social engineering, as this says over here. So <clears throat> I think this is a very interesting example. And I think, I think it really this should really make us think it should make us think about the the infancy of this platform for one and two it should really make us wonder are there things we're doing right now that are just not acceptable and we just don't know because the groups we're doing these things against are minorities you know and if so you know what this this yeah yeah. sorry go for it sorry no no please okay um you know what well, what this brings to my mind is that it seems that there is a symbiosis <clears throat> between censorship <clears throat> and structural racism mm-hmm. and inequality and social engineering and eugenicists, what have you. And perhaps a natural outcome of having a free and open media is that we are that we tend more to being less racist overall. Just, just a thought, really, because we'll go through a few historical examples in a moment, but there are plenty, and it seems that a very a common link between each of them, or most of them at least, is structural racism and the thoughts that accompany it. And that's where this gets interesting. Like you said... Like, <clears throat> sorry, um, 
But you've got these platforms that are obviously very different to the ones that we're discussing right now. Social media right now is relatively open. If 100,000 people right now for some moment, for some reason, decided to tweet, I love English lavender, they could go ahead and do that. And it would take a while for Twitter to take it down, or maybe they wouldn't even have a reason to take it down. But you've got 100,000 instances of someone saying, I love English lavender. And it's out in the open. If someone looks you up, goes onto your Twitter program profile, and they see that there, they're like, huh, this guy loves English lavender. That's awesome. It's um, a pretty controversial thought, though. I know, right? I know. I mean, sorry. Sorry if this is getting too heated. Uh, we might have to put a content warning at the start of the next one. Um, <laughs> we can do that in post, right? We can always go back in post. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no worries. Um, but yeah, so my point, yeah, you're, you actually have a very good point. These previous forms of media, um, whether it be uh, filtering the uh, main source of information through books, which we're going to get into, I think you might want to have a bit of a talk about that in a bit, uh, or changing film. I mean, this is this is a very interesting thing because the paradigm is you have one source that's broadcasting out to many listeners, right? And you can easily modify what happens in that one source. But social media is a very very interesting, different beast altogether. It's like a it's like a graph of if every person was like, let me think. Trying to think of a good metaphor here, but you've basically got this thing where you've got all of these people who can actually communicate between each other. So you haven't got one source. So every listener, everyone who was previously receiving content is also a producer of content. Like in this instance of social media versus film, everyone is a, a node or a vector by which communication can happen. Whereas in the previous age, film, the communication could only go one way. One way. It was unidirectional, and it was one-to-many. I, I really don't want to use too much computer science terminology here uh, because, you know, I'm, I really don't expect the majority of this podcast to be a computer scientist, but if that's the case, welcome. I hope you're enjoying this. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, th I think just, just from that perspective, um, it's, a it's a different beast. Maybe people will be less likely to be racist. Um, because they say, hey, everyone can see what I'm writing and everyone else can write as well. But at the same time, it might also lead to communities of people just generally clustering up and breeding self, I mean, breeding hateful speech. I mean, it's like, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I can see it going both ways. Um, and I'm pretty sure it probably does go both ways most of the time. I'm pretty sure people in the public eye keep their controversial opinions to themselves. And I'm sure people who aren't in the public eye create groups and they share their racist rhetoric or hateful rhetoric. Absolutely. And the online sphere accommodates all sorts of rhetorics very comfortably, right? There's, there's no limit to the to number of chat rooms you can find on Reddit or where have you. And such websites are also prone to filter bubbles as we, as we have discussed in the past. And so you get echo chambers again of thought. I feel like this is a recurring theme. The more we go into this, it's just... It, it starts to make the case for the censorship. But yeah, anyway, that, that's a very interesting... Well, point. I think f filter bubbles are kind of a, a problem of our era. They build themselves up in all of these different online 
spheres of discussion and they seem to have an overwhelming or at least very significant effect upon politics and so it is truly an issue of our era in my view at least yeah but then again it's not really an issue we talked about this earlier right <clears throat> may not necessarily this may just be like the technological equivalent to having those uh societies like back in the day um used to have these societies such as they're still around the Ku Klux Klan for example um, you, that's almost like a filter bubble in itself because you've got these people going to these meetings and these meetings are all, um, and they're constantly surrounded by each other. They're constantly surrounded with their rhetoric. The idea is you probably live close to most of these members. They're probably part of your community. Isn't this just the digitization of that concept? I don't know. We've spoken yeah. about it. I, uh, yeah, we have. I think <laughs> we can't, well, I just think the, the nature of having everyone digitally connected to literally everyone is a vastly <clears throat> different beast than just, you know, committing yourself to a racist club and then reinforcing racist ideas. Into I love head. that. Committing yourself to a racist club. So casual. That's, that's what the Ku Klux is. Ku this Klux is club. true. This is true. Anyway, do you want to go to the next case study? Do you have any, do you have any more? Yeah, sure. So I guess take, let's take a little historical tour of censorship perhaps. And we can just start by a short quote. Truth is the first victim in a war, stated by Senator Hiram Johnson. Sorry about the pronunciation. That's a name I've never seen before. But basically, in the past century in particular, in the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, they experienced an era of strict censorship lasting from 1917 until the 1980s. And when we account for the long history of strict censorship during Tsar regimes as well, the Russian people have only been without formal censorship since the last decade of this millennium. And so during the 20s, the 1920s that is, the time of Lenin and Trotsky, writers and artists were granted creative freedom, provided they did not engage in overt political dissent. And to take the example of Nazi Germany and the occupied countries that followed, the Nazis would confiscate radios, shut down national newspapers and radio station, and illegal press flourished in a number of those affected countries. I believe Norway was one in particular where they had over 400 published newsletters over the period of op occupation. And obviously the consequences were very dire to those who were caught facilitating that. And another example is a more recent one, apartheid in South Africa. Rampant censorship occurred there as well. And yeah, so we live in a very different era to those times. I, what comes to mind is the internet and the ability for any individual in any country to, they don't, it's, it's hard to hold governments to account, but it is a true it will be a truly effective tool in doing so and it is helping people to do so but raises questions of whether world governments are still coming to terms with this new degree of supposed accountability i mean you have some in, governments that just aren't right sorry continue uh, you yeah. go on sorry no you take that yeah, yeah you've, you've got some governments like um that still believe in strict censorship um, and now that's a stance. Um, it definitely is a stance that um, 
that's definitely different from quiet uh, i see this as a spectrum almost you've got some governments that are very very um strong advocates for free speech actually can't really think of any off the top of my head <laughs> can't remember the last time a government said hey go say whatever you want on the internet have fun you know you know don't get yourself into too much trouble now um so but then again you've got governments that don't actually do much which makes me think maybe they aren't too bothered by what goes on on the internet then you've got some governments in the middle that do care, such as the UK that we discussed. And then you've got some governments that take it so seriously that you cannot use a service that is not accepted by them. And the one that comes to mind is China. So you've definitely got a spectrum here. And now the question is, what's the best way to do it? Is there a best way to do it? Does it really does it really matter? Because I think at the end of the day, they're all trying to achieve the same thing, aren't they? Well, at least the, the latter. Maybe the first one isn't really trying to achieve much in this restriction domain. Uh, they're trying to achieve freedom. The, the first one is in no censorship. But I think, yeah, along the spectrum of censorship, they're all trying to achieve the same goal of keeping the internet, let's say, decent. Whether that be shifting political rhetoric or minimizing extremist views or keeping bullying at a minimum yeah well i definitely see the argument for just you know cleaning up specifically social media and internet discourse but involving government in it as we've seen through some of these historical examples I don't think the goals are typically aligned with, you know, just making everyday discussion more favorable. Their, their bottom line is just to have a more stable country or government, but right? Is it that is that is it that insane? Like, sorry, I'm just going to circle back, but let's just think about this. Is it such an unconceivable thought that a government would want to regulate the internet to keep the demons away almost to keep the the bad guys out of the public discourse like is it that inconceivable that a government would always at the end of it default to abusing that power i mean it's a risk but is it always gonna happen i don't know i mean are we being a bit unfair are we looking at this through the historical lens are there other ways? I don't know. I don't know. I just came to mind. Like, maybe it's not the worst thing. I mean, are, are we sure they're going to abuse it? <laughs> well, yeah, this is, I guess, what I was trying to get at before, wherein internet should hold these governments to a higher degree of accountability in this day and age. everything that tries to keep them to the high degree of accountability? Well, then it'd be too hard for us to tell whether, you know, they're doing a good or bad job but then right? you've got like, like if, blanket if we are deprived of all of the relevant informa information who's to say like, look at it like you've got governments that are literally censoring everything that goes through the filter like everything's literally going through a filter and i bet you most of the people in these countries have no idea that everything that they say is going through a filter or maybe if they exactly maybe if they do if you live in a heavily censored society odds are you're not as aware of the degree of censorship as persons who live outside it in an uncensored 
And do you even care? Maybe some people just don't care. Maybe some people just want to wake up in the morning, brush their teeth, do their morning routine, have breakfast, go to work, come back home, spend time with their family, the end. Do they actually care? I don't know. It's interesting. I don't think they care by default. And... Yeah, I think if you are a denizen of such a society or country, then it is likely that you probably don't care as much as someone who's outside because, I mean, you you don't have all of the facts at your disposal, right? Yeah, and like, but then again, even denizens of these societies, I mean, they have ways around it. Those that really want to leave these filter bubbles of the government, they do. I mean, I don't think it's a hot take, but have you heard of a VPN? You can, you can easily escape whatever is blocked. And there's very little that a internet service provider can do other than collate a blacklist of VPNs, but it's like each time you take one down, 10 new sprout up. It's like, how long is that blacklist going to be? I mean, I don't know. And then let's say you're, um, let's say that you have a, a bit of knowledge that you want to share. I mean, people have been leaking, like from journalists, leaking um, uh, information outside. You've got these things like the dark web, for instance. Maybe not the dark web, maybe the deep web. Let me rephrase. You've got the deep web. You've got Tor browser. You've got all of these ways to get information out. So if you really wanted to do it, maybe no censorship can really stop you. Yeah, well, we have a lot of tools with which these days to circumvent that, right? And something that I was thinking about with regards to these types of censorship is, we've mentioned it before, but SpaceX Global Satellite Array, Starlink. So they're going to be giving high-speed broadband worldwide. It'll be an array that basically leaves nowhere uncovered by internet. I was wondering whether that would basically allow any cell phone to communicate directly with it. But, you know, upon educating myself a little bit, all of these services require receivers on the ground. And so they can be outright banned by countries. Um, Something similar called OneWeb, a satellite array, is already banned in Russia. Yeah, I mean, but then again, like, going back to the computer science, what do you need to transfer a message? Like, just going back to, like, a message is just a bunch of ones and zeros. If, if, if society, like, I'm not saying you can replace the internet, but, like, if society really wanted to, we could easily engineer an alternative network using, you know, maybe even long... Do you know about long-range Wi-Fi? Uh, no. Yeah, so it's used as, um, it's almost like those, have you seen on the top of houses, you've got those, like, almost, um, receivers for TV, right? So, satellite Satellite dishes, dishes. there we go. So, you can have a range of, like, if you wanted to use five long-range Wi-Fi, you could. It has a range of 50 meters, um, and you could easily transfer ones and zeros over that. Or even radio. Um, I'm sure if you tried hard enough, you could write a protocol there to transfer data over the radio. Maybe you can have a sender. Like, have you ever seen those um, little radio um, dongles that you get for cars without Bluetooth? Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, you can easily plug you can easily program one of those to send some data over the radio network. And who's to know you who's to say you can't chain those um networks up? I mean, of course this is all hypothetical, but if we really yeah. wanted to transfer data outside of the internet, like this is going back to World War Two. Do you remember they used to have like radio communication and you'd have ciphers and codes, you know? Yeah, you'd have to codify messages. They had the uh, what the Enigma code or something. The Enigma code. There you go. Yeah, so that's I guess one example. Basically, wherein there are a number of people who are trying to communicate in a country with strict censorship policy and to do so they have to invent this crazy box that can turn any message into some crazy mumble jumble of yeah i mean it was a wartime numeric it was a wartime it was a wartime paradigm it was a wartime method of communication over these radio signals cuz who knows who's listening but yeah yeah you can definitely draw a lot of parallels to that and if we really wanted to we could get past it but but coming back down to what we're talking about here, we're talking about social media censorship. So maybe if you want to throw a negative comment on your mate's Instagram account, well, they're probably not your friend if you're doing this. But if you're throwing a negative comment down there, maybe this is enough to stop the negative comments. And maybe in government intervention is not needed at this level. I mean, like I said, you've got the gray areas that are few and far between, but they're, they're, they're there. And then you've got the black and whites. And Absolutely. maybe having social media giants policing their own platforms for black and whites is fair game. Now, it's a bit dangerous, uh, but it's like, yeah, like any time you put someone in charge, John, any time you say, hey, you're making sure everything's going to be fine you have this issue, whether that be government or whether that be a social media giant. I mean, that, that's just how I think it is. Unless you have a board of maybe diverse people, maybe a committee deciding what's acceptable or not. But once you get there, you have so much democracy that who knows if anything will pass. Much to think about yeah. there, yeah. It's, it's honestly very interesting um, stuff. What, what do you think? Do, do you think... Do you think there's a way around this? Do you think there's... Do you, do you, like, just personally? I don't know if you want to talk about it. Well, I... Th I think we're on a similar page wherein, you know, we were originally discussing social media censorship, particularly Instagram. And I think that that's generally an appropriate tactic that they've taken, you know, to just prompt you to double-check your message. And if it violates it, then... Um, you could potentially get your account banned and also the like, you know, setting the like counter to invisible, things like that. Instagram's not a controversial platform, though. It, I don't think that there's much mention, at least from what I've seen, of, you know, it being appropriated for nefarious purposes. But maybe they're doing a good job at it, which is why we haven't heard of it. Um, that being said, yeah, there are... But I think this is less nuanced. Yeah, I think this is less is for nefarious purposes and more for hateful speech. I think the <clears throat> sorry, I think the main Instagram story was on, was on bullying, right? They're trying to reduce the degree of bullying. Yeah, you know, like I know people that go on Instagram and they just just end up deactivating their account after a while. 
I know people who just use it for memes too. Man, is that where all the good memes are at? <laughs> um, some of them. I don't know. <laughs> I use Reddit for my memes, but me yeah. too. Reddit's where again decentralized memes. Again, hit up Reddit, guys. If you're if you're not on Reddit, you're you're living your internet life wrong. You know, they're not paying us for this plug, by no, the way. No, not so. at all. Not at all. But you know, you get yourself onto Reddit. Come on, what are you doing? Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we went into a another segue, basically regarding how you know, if left up to the ingenuity of the common people, we will always find ways to circumvent these firewalls or instances of censorship or what have you. But just to circle back and maybe sort of close off that section with. A quote from a German Jewish poet, Heinrich Heine, um, who wrote in 1820, where they burn books, they will ult- ultimately also burn people. Oof. This was more than a hundred years before the Nazi era. Really? Yeah. 1820. No, you're kidding. And among his works, this book in particular, were burnt by the Nazis. So obviously they've managed to salvage a few copies for us to be hearing that. But um, sadly ironic, I suppose. Goosebumps. Like tragic irony. Goosebumps, man. Yeah. (sighs) And so I think that kind of rings true to all of the other instances of government censorship. There are nefarious things at play with the, the listings that we went through. So, you know, the USSR, Nazi Germany, apartheid South Africa. And just to remember, these things and were very, very recent. These, these aren't, these, this is not ancient history we're talking about. We're not talking about the Romans. We're not talking about the Aztec Empire. We're talking about your grandparents, or maybe even your parents' generation, or maybe even your generation. Who knows what kind of diversity we have listen to the, listening to this podcast. Well, funny that you mentioned the Romans, actually. Yeah. Oh, God. So... They actually have an appointed person called the censor. (laughs) So they're a magistrate in ancient Rome who was responsible for maintaining the census, supervising public morality, and overseeing government finances. Wow. So the power of the censor was absolute and no magistrate could oppose his decisions and only another censor who succeeded him could cancel those decisions. So this was like the ultimately centralized governance of public morality like this is from the wikipedia like, page <sighs> they supervise public morality that's insane you know, i guess i i guess i know who i'd want to be best friends with if i was a roman politician <laughs> hey you know will the censor down the street <laughs> get him a drink or two every day he must yeah. be like flowered with gifts man like like honestly like i can see myself grow up in the roman roman times and be like i want to be censor when i grow up it'd be a yeah. good spot to be in i suppose well uh, Oh my gosh, dictate public speech. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Now that's, that, no, wow. I've, I've no idea what to say. Yeah, so that was just me, you know, you were listing. Right, I was trying to say, hey, we're not going back to, we're not going back to Romans. And you're like, wait, no, but even back then. <laughs> I reckon the Romans probably engaged in a bit of censorship. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but yeah, that's. That that brings us back to if it's been a consistent thing in humanity, why are we why are we assuming it's gone now? 
like well what's changed or have we have we become have we become enlightened over the past hundred years i don't know I, like maybe i maybe, think that a really, byproduct really, of the internet and this interconnectedness is that we should by default become more enlightened but this is evidence the roman censor that there have always been people trying to influence public discourse and shape the way again public morality is dictated and that's just very interesting. Oh, such naivety. Yeah. <laughs> such naivety. I don't know. I mean, may- maybe, maybe, maybe we've changed. Maybe humanity over the course of 100 years has transformed even less. Just, just to remember these things that we're talking about are actually more like 50, 60, 70 years ago. Not even 100 years. Your, your parents are probably older than, older than this. So if we've are- really reformed... I mean, yeah, great. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's a bit. It's a bit of a tough one to come to accept. I mean, yeah, I'd I get like that. to think we have. I'm. Pr- I don't know. I'm pretty stubborn on this. I think there are a lot of features of our day and age that allow us to have a better understanding of how other cultures and civilizations work. A hundred years ago, a, a voyage from you know between Australia and the UK take months. We can fly there in less than a day now. You can truly get to another country and have a proper insight to how it works and the goings-on of that society, much more so than you could 100 years ago. Even, you know, commercial airlines only really became viable to the average person 40 years ago. But man, and man, okay, okay, just for context, just for context, just for context, this is you talking. And John, I know you pretty well. You're a really nice guy. Honestly, you're, you're, you're so nice, you're... So kind-hearted. You've, you've, you've got the world ahead of you, no? But who's to say that everyone is John Hewson? Wouldn't that be a crazy world? Wake up, everyone's John Hewson. Um, so, yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I feel like there are some in London. <laughs> but what impact would that have <laughs> regarding censorship, Shabazz? <laughs> my point, my point is, like, I feel like you've got a feeling that, like, society's become enlightened over the last 50 years, and maybe people, you know, may- maybe this isn't as much of an issue as it used to be. But I feel like that's true through your lens, but maybe through, maybe through your average, like, your average person living out somewhere, maybe it's not the case. I'd like to think we've changed, but I don't know, man. It's a, it's a long, long, long history of. Racism, oppression, colonization. That's what we've been born and bred on. So who knows? Anyway. Granted. It's a very multifaceted issue. Leaving on that dark note. (laughs) Exactly. And we can leave it at that. (laughs) Yeah, let's just leave it there. I mean, it's 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 a big one. And it's funny how it leaks into social media. That's the thing that I love about technology, you know? Just to wrap things up, and I think this is kind of like, um, this is kind of like, it's been somewhat of the foundation of this podcast, even up until today, right? I feel like technology has really reached a point where it's no longer just a computer geek in the 1980s, in a basement, in a garage, working on reducing the number of transistors to make this processor do maths faster. It's really become this transformative. I mean, I know it's pretty obvious, but just to think about it, it's become this transformative societal construct. 
that literally everyone has access to and uses and we've kind of become dependent on. So needless to say, these technological changes that are happening so fast, rapidly, they're obviously starting to seep into our society, right? And that's why we're able to come up on this podcast every week and think of all of these all of these wonderful topics to discuss and go through case studies and talk about government intervention on something with a few with a bit of sand running it, you know? That's what a processor is at a very basic level. It's just a bit of sand. Silicon. It's it's, it's really, really fascinating. It's it's cool. Oh. It has come a huge very long way indeed. Wow. Like, wow. Yeah, technology these days is responsible, particularly social media. It hugely affects political discourse and can have the power to topple regimes. And that's, so, and, yeah. that's, and that's why we're going into these um, deeper topics, I guess. That's what I'm trying to say here. That's why, for some reason, on a tech podcast, racism seems oddly relevant. On, on these tech podcasts, Nazism, I mean, colonialism, all of these... Huge themes in human history have really bubbled up to the surface. And I feel like this is just the beginning. Like I said, it's still in its infancy. Yeah. Well, which is why we're a tech podcast, but largely focused on the social outcomes of that. Yeah, and it's a really interesting place to be. It's a very interesting place to be. Anyway, on that note. And on that note. (laughs) uh, As I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> On that note, thank you so much for ho- co- for co-hosting this podcast with me, John. This was, honestly, I say this every time, but I really mean it. This was a very, very interesting topic. I think there's so much to talk about in this realm. As, and as always, I'm sure we'll touch on this again. It's just, it's just things happen in tech, and things come up again, and there are different lenses you can look at these issues with. and. I feel like this is just the beginning. So, as always, thank you for being a wonderful co-host. It's been a really, really good, um, really good experience for myself, and I'm sure the listeners have enjoyed it as well. And um, do you have any final notes to add on to this, John? Oh, same goes for you, Shabazz. Thank you for being, as per usual, a wonderful co-host. Um, just, I guess, one closing thought is that Hindsight is twenty twenty. We can look at these case studies and come up with all of the reasonings we like. But again, we are in changing times and who knows what dynamics will affect the outcomes of, you know, what we see in the next decade of censorship or altering online discourse. Nobody knows because the environment has changed so significantly. Just a closing thought, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, definitely. And just to, I guess, add on to that, I guess we're dragging this ending out a little. Um, but on that thought, I mean, it's really good that we're revisiting history. And as you said, these things might change. Um, and we're really looking at case studies, but I feel like uh, there's a philosopher called um, George Santayana. Have you heard of this guy? Uh, no. um, but there's, he's this very very well-known philosopher, and he has a quote that's quite um, well-known, I'd like to think. 
those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So I guess that's kind of like the whole, the whole theme behind this podcast almost. So yeah, just leaving you with that. Thank you all for such a wonderful podcast. And until the next time, see you then. Thank you listeners. Until next time. Take care.